Okay, here we go. The Panda Maggie Show. He's about to get crazy and wild. Stay for a while. Don't touch a radio dial. The Panda Show. Kicking it back. Sports talk. Listen to that and stay tuned for some giggles and laughs. Go. Welcome to the Planet Mikey Show. Planet Mikey Show. We're happy to have gotten this far. No one's shot us. No one's uh, locked us up. No one's pissed on us or rained on our parades. Uh, by the way, the Planet we've been Mike- asking. Although all those things should have happened by now. <laughs> uh, we're brought to you by Dr. Robert Leonard and Leonard Hair Transplant Associates, and Dr. Matthew Lepresti, who transplanted some of my hair. We'll get into that a little later on in the program. But we're happy as hell to have a legend in the studio with us. Uh, a guy who's, uh, man, he's seen it all. He has seen it all. He's played with everybody. He knows everybody. He's played everywhere. Everybody loves him. It's the one and only James Montgomery. Melissa, I care to everybody loves But I do love Who your hair, love though. You? I love your hair, though. The guy's doing a great job. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? And, and you know too. what? And I'm, I'm glad to hear that, you know, my goal in show business for many years was to rewrite the Planet Mikey theme when you when you did this that. This is the you theme know? to Mikey. Show. I know, and and all I kept thinking is, you know, I, I got to eventually I met you, but it, you know, it, but when I didn't it hadn't met you, I said I got to call this guy. So I, I like your new theme song. It's yeah, really nice. Yeah, that was sent in by some guy in a basement. You know, people in basements can do good things. Well, you know, exactly, and uh, eventually we'll get arrested down here eventually. But anyway, <laughs> now you've been playing uh, forever. Forever. I mean, was it early? Was it late sixties or early seventies that you that you busted your cherry, so to speak, in the world of music? And by the way, uh, Ben Kitchen wasn't born when you started your musical career. Not quite. But he's uh, he's hip. Practically nobody was born when I started my music <laughs> career. You know, I, it, the James Montgomery Band officially started in nineteen sixty nine and in, um, in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But I had a high school band. That, that did really well. My high school band opened for Iggy Pop and the MC5. So, you know, I, I've had I've been in a band since I was 15. The first band I joined was a jug band. Was that in Detroit? Yeah, in Detroit, yeah. a jug band with, with Chris Seo. And eventually, um, le- knowing how to play the jug came in handy because the first time Les Paul calls me up on stage, you know, I, I call off a shuffle. He's been playing standards. I call off a shuffle. The crowd goes nuts. He says, James, where'd you learn how to play harmonica like that? I said, well, I started in a jug band. See, I'm answering your question. Yes. I started. <laughs> you in, I, it's, I, I, it's a roundabout way. I said, well, Les, I started a jug. He said, well, so didn't I. He says, the guy in the front row passed out that bottle of wine there, and he passes up an empty bottle of wine. He counts off a ragtime thing. One, two. And I'm going, and I'm playing the jug. And at the end of it, he's going, and I get a standing ovation for playing the jug. Two days later, snail mail, picture of me and Les Paul. He's looking up at me, and he. And you're how old? Uh, no, this no this this was later oh, on. Later, okay, later. No, when, no, when you learn more about jugs. Well, yeah, no, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, 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 this wasn't. This was after I was already playing. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So this wasn't your virgin. No, no, because but 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 you know, I said I started a jug band, so he passes up an empty bottle, and then he sends me a, a picture, and he caps. He says, James, you played the jug, the bottle, because we didn't have a jug. I'm so proud of you, Les Paul. So wow. So starting out in a That's jug band huge. when I was when I was 15. 
paid off later on in life. That's all I'm saying. But then you came to Boston. Yes. As a, a BU student, as a terrier, if you will. Absolutely. You know, and uh, let's not forget the great football legacy at BU. No, I don't think that's true. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so I came to BU, and I, you know, it, 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 my brother John ended up in San Francisco. I ended up in Boston. When you think about it, that's as far east or west as you can go from Detroit without swimming. But anyway. It's true. Um, but I purposely wanted to get accepted to a Boston college because I knew about the Club 47. I knew about Paul's Mall, the Jazz Workshop. I was really totally familiar with the Boston music scene. And when I got accepted, they wouldn't take me at Harvard, but they took me at BU. BU, yeah. But anyway, so, so I really picked Boston because, you know, I'd been playing in bands in high school and I wanted to come to this great music community. And it is a great music community. It's underrated by, by some, in some corners. There, there are some snobs in this country who think that all the music started there. You know, Seattle, L.A. and Austin, Texas. And Boston's launched a lot of careers. Boston's one of the most... New England in general is a very healthy music environment. It, you, once you get out to the Midwest and you look for... It, it, they don't hire bands that play original music. And there's, But my theory is there's so many colleges and universities and every time you get colleges and universities there's like people that like niche markets they like blues they like jazz they like classical you know they're not necessarily you know top 40 people you know right right. and and so there's a preponderance of that uh if i can quote uh, the guy from the people's court but anyway there's a preponderance (laughs) feel free a preponderance (laughs) of 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 people that want to hear different kinds of music you know so there's it's always a healthy music scene in new england and and when you leave new england you really get a sense that that we're lucky um that so many great bands have come out of here and have been supported uh, by so many great people. But you didn't really have to start too small right away. Uh, you got involved with some, at least people who would become very big names. Yeah, you know, my my college band, you know, took off. Um, uh, you know, I, I ran into Steven Tyler at, um, at at Wurlitzer's, and he goes, wow, James Montgomery says, can we open some shows for you? And I said, well, I don't know. What's the name of your band? And, and, this, and this was basically my college band. It was, it was, I'd only been out of school, for out of college for about what's six months. What's the name months. of your band? Yeah, I said, what's the name of your band? And he said, Aerosmith. And I said, you know, I've heard of you guys. You're supposed to be pretty good. I said, I'll put you on five shows, you know. So, and, and, so which was great because... You know, the open, opening band would come on with, like, the scrim with the logo and yeah. the smoke machines and the wall of marshals. And, sure. the, and, 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 and then the opening, they'd pull all that stuff away and there'd be a drum kit with a few fenders and here comes the headliner. Right. But, but you know, so, um, so I did, my band did really well right out of college. So within a year after my college band, I signed a huge deal with the Capricorn Records. And they said, you know... Um, you're going to have to. It's two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and and uh, and uh, in nineteen seventy two or whatever. Big it was. money back then. And, and they said you you have to. You're going to have to make two albums and tour with with the Alma Brothers, Leonard Skinner, and Marshall Tucker, and and my father was a director of public relations at Chrysler, right? So I called him up. I said, you know, Dad, I need a car. I, I know we were excited. <laughs> I know we were excited about me teaching at BU because I was in line to be a professor. But I just want to let you know, and I said this with, some, with my Detroit accent, I'm going full-time rock and roll, you know. And so there's a pause on the end of the phone, a long pause. Yeah. He goes, you know, Jim, I'm glad to see we spent $20,000 on your education, and now you're going to make your living playing a child's toy. 
the harmonica, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah but how, the how, harmonica, yeah. That's how, how does he take that, though, when you tell him <laughs> it's either a teaching job at BU, which is what, $10,000 at well, that time? Well, back then I think it was twelve, but uh, $12,000 $12, <laughs> yeah. versus a ridiculous contract? When you, when you show him the number, does it? Well, I never, told, I never told him that, you know. But, oh, you didn't tell him about the money? How? No, How did you not I, just I, at least I, brag about it a little bit? Well, first no, thing no, I would have said. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, I'll pay you back the 20000 Dad. Yeah, I've no, got you know, my, my reaction was, well, I, I thought quickly in my mind that uh, worldwide, Japan, Germany, Vienna, United States, probably 10,000 youngsters get a harmonic in their Christmas stocking. Yeah. And I said, yeah, Dad, that's it exactly. I'm playing a child's toy for a living. But <laughs> It could be worse. I could be out there with a yo-yo, you know, or an etch-a-sketch. But no, I got the harmonica. Yeah. Years later, when I'm a blues brother and, and, and he comes to visit me in Toronto, I'm playing with the blues brothers in Toronto, and he comes into my hotel room to visit me, and John Candy, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, yeah. bunch and, of nobodies, and, and Martin Short are there. That's when my father finally goes, "Oh, Jim, glad to see you're playing the harmonica." <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Can I buy a new yeah, child's yeah. toy for Christmas? That's, it wasn't yeah. until then, that's great. until he walked into my hotel when I was. That's, that's when my father finally said, "You know, Jim, good job, <laughs> good pal, job, you know? kid." Yeah, I always wanted to meet John Candy. You know? And we had a gig for you at Chrysler, <laughs> but I think you've done all. All right. I think you've yeah. done all right. Um, now, you, Janis Joplin, came up in one of your bios as an early uh, connection to you. Well, it, you know that comes up in one of my bios for some reason, uh, and and I never met Janis and never toured oh, with her. But, but well, the, I got her. She's coming here tonight. Exactly. You know, <laughs> she's going to reappear. It won't be the first time she came here tonight. But anyway, um, but it, it, you know, I was in, in Johnny's Winners Band for so many years, and, yeah. at, and I was in the Caldwell you, Winfield you guys, Band. You must have played with everybody. At one time or another in your, I mean, is there anybody that, that you can say right now off the top of your head you, you haven't ever met? That's well, in the, music the, the one guy I really want to play with, and, and I get, I used to get asked this, so I don't know, I don't know, but now it's um, it's definitive. I want to play with Keith, you know. I mean, I've met Mick, and, and I spent New, New Year's Eve with him one night, one, one time, <laughs> best New Year's ever. Was it really? Oh, yeah. But anyway, but but the guy I want to play with is Keith, but, but anyway... Is is there a mad rush to get that done? Because you know, because everybody said he was going to die when he was forty, fifty, sixty, seventy. He snorted his father's ashes. You know that story comes out. And this is a guy who everybody has him on their death pool because they don't think he's going to last because of his former lifestyle or whatever lifestyle he has now. Uh, is there kind of a thing where you better get that done before he's eighty five? I, I think Keith is immortal. I think he's. You know, is that I, I think you know. I, I think you know. Fifty five years from now, you know, if there's still a planet, right. Uh, which looks dubious as far as I'm concerned, but anyway, uh, you know, it, it, listen, Keith is. Um, I don't. I don't know what it is. I just want to play with Keith. What well, is he? That's he must be 75 say. anyway. Keith, right? He gotta he's be. probably somewhere around there. Yeah, I'm thinking. You know, 42. Hey, Bill, 42. get him on the phone. Get him on the phone. <laughs> okay. It's ready. You got his number. <laughs> Come on. Um, okay, so you you opened for the Almond Brothers. You you went on a tour with the Almond Brothers, and you've toured with Aerosmith too. Yeah, you know, it, it, so we we signed this big deal, and then um, and then we we start going on the road. We we broke. It, it was a Boston band, but we broke out of the the, the uh, out of the Amherst and um, the Amherst area and and the Willimantic area, Yukon, a oh, place called yeah. the Shabu Inn. Yeah, the Shabu, the most dangerous nightclub in the history of show business. Lefty Foster, Lefty David Foster, exactly. Yep. Yeah. 
So yeah, we you, were, you were a legend there because I'm from Connecticut, and everybody that I, I called my buddy, I said You're, that, that James Montgomery's coming on the podcast, and he goes, I, he goes, I saw him at least six times at Shabu. I said I was probably with you. Well, we were the house band, me, James Cotton, the fabulous Rhinestones, and and uh, the two guys, Aztec Two Step. We right. were the house bands, but when you played the Shabu, you would play. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, whatever. Sure. And they had these rooms upstairs. And I'm telling you, it was the most dangerous place in the history of rock and roll. Actually, they they got Sting to play there for $27 with the police. And Lefty still has the canceled check. But anyway, so it was a wild place. Women, so we, drugs, alcohol. It was a crazy time, too. One, one, one day, we, you know, we would get there early. You know, we get there a day or two early. Why not, you know? And and so we, we got there a day early before we were supposed to play one time, and we asked him if we could tend bar. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, good. So people come up, I'd like some whiskey, please. We put a glass on the on the, on the bar, turn the bottle up, said, and we go, say when. <laughs> so we, we lasted as bartenders for, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, so it was a great place to play. And, and anyway, so we broke out of uh, we broke out of, out of that area and also the Amist area and became national. So our first tour... Once we get with Capricorn, we had two things, a couple things we did. The first, the first gig we ever played on the road was with Mahavishnu Orchestra, and it was in uh, it was in Chicago at the Auditorium Theater, which is acoustically perfect. Right, yeah, right. You know, it, during sound check, one of the sound guys takes me to this place where you know where, where the people on stage look like ants, and there's a little plaque up there that says, "Please be quiet due to perfect acoustics." So. McLaughlin's band, that Mahavishnu's breaking up. That it, people hate each other in the band and everything. And John gets out there and says, "I'd like a moment of silence for my guru, Sri Chinmoy." And the uh, trumpet player takes out a can of butt and taps it down, chick, 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 chick. and then he opens up, and you can hear it all over the theater. <laughs> wow! And then and then John McLaughlin's like this, arms folded, head down, and you can hear him go. Glug, glug, glug. Whoa. Yeah. So that was my first day on the road. And as a matter of fact, McLaughlin was in such a hurry to get out there. He sent us up at like 740 when it was 8 o'clock show. And that was the only time I've ever done that. We're, we're, we're coming out there and people are finding their seats. The lights are on. <laughs> You're playing. Our, our girl in the front row looks at my bass player and says, who are you? He says, the Beatles, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, so so that was my first day on the road. And then eventually, you know, the, the night I met Bruce Springsteen, he sold 75 tickets. Yeah, because he wasn't selling tickets early on. No one knew. Well, no, the 75 tickets. <laughs> you know, we were, we were making our first record in Philadelphia at Gamble and Huff we were, we were alongside the OJs. And we were playing dice and poker with the OJs and everything. And, and Gamble and Huff, amazing people. I, I could tell you a million stories about that. But anyway... So we're sitting there one night. We got one night a week off, and we're staying at this farm on the Beltway or whatever they call it up there in Philadelphia. And my bass player says, hey, that this guy Springsteen's playing at the, at the Bryn Mawr Coffee House, the main point, a coffee house. A coffee house. Acoustic. So, yeah, so um, so we say to the guys, man, hey, let's go see Springsteen. You guys want to come? No, I never heard of him. So we go there, and we see this guy, Bruce Springsteen. He's got Clarence. He's got the whole thing. And he's, it's a 75-seater. He sold half a house. And me and Billy, the bass player, nudging him and go, wow, this guy's going to be huge, man. Listen to this stuff. Listen yeah. to those lyrics and everything. So when Springsteen went on his first tour, we were the opening band on his first tour. Oh, man. And, and we were playing colleges, seeing like 800 people a night. 
That's awesome. Now, that was what, 69? No, 70, 72, maybe. Oh, so, okay. 72, 73, somewhere around there. I had read that uh, in a couple of things, Bruce Springsteen, you know, rock and roll history, played at this place, uh, this high school, you know, and and, and there were 11 people there. This is really No, 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 that's true. I mean, you know. Because no one knew who the hell he was. I mean, you know, hey, you know, we all started like that, you know. (laughs) There were times in my life when. uh, There's a million of those stories growing up around here. About Aerosmith, same thing. Yeah, right. Well, he put, Aerosmith. Aerosmith, Aerosmith actually, paid I, our prom. I like live that, in Upton, Mass. Right. Uh, their first gig was at uh, uh, the uh, Nipmuc High School in Upton, Massachusetts, right down the street from my house. Uh, way, way, way back. I met him though at an acid party. <laughs> Believe really? it or not, yes, right, in New yeah. Hampshire. I didn't know they, they weren't famous then. So, yet what either. were you wearing at the acid party? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure then. No, no, there was these guys, and I thought they were all weirdos because they all had the same kind of haircut. They were in a band. I didn't know it, it was a party. Everybody's all wasted on orange sunshine, and they were on the phone. And my buddy was trying to get them to get off the phone so he could call his girlfriend because there were no cell phones back then, and they were giving each other a little hard time. So, and then I'm at a radio station. I finally get work, work in radio. I flipping through some albums. I go. Oh, there's those dudes from the acid party. Look at these guys. <laughs> I called my friend. I said, look, I'm looking at an album cover. He says, is it Aerosmith? I go, yeah. He goes, they were at my house. I go, I know. And I was tripping, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it was real weird. But they've been they've been around quite a while, uh, Aerosmith, but not longer than you. But I've never had only 11 people in my audience. 13 once, but never 11. You, no. know, it's a, no, you anyway. draw the can line. I, can I t- say you something? You draw the line at no a baker's pun intended. People always talk about your energy, uh, that you have boundless energy. Now, here you are, over 50. <laughs> uh, really? You, you've oh, been, my God. You've been playing for 45 No, no wonder. You, you light up a room. When you start to play, it's like you don't care who's there. Who's They're all listening within 10 seconds because... You really can take control of a room. That's like that's one of your big skills. I'll tell you that in the harp. Well, well, thank you. I, 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 I appreciate that. And and if if I can attribute that to anything, it's that I've always modeled my band after 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 the Paul Butterfield band and the James Cotton band. The first time I saw Paul Butterfield, you know, I was like I said, I started in a jug band, and um, so I went to see the Jim Queskin jug band. And they mentioned Paul Butterfield, and they all laughed. So when Paul Butterfield gets booked in, in, in Detroit, I'm going down there expecting to see, like, a folky band, you know? And they had all this electric equipment there, but at this coffee house where we used to see them, after, after the folk bands would play, they'd turn the house, and there'd be electric bands, and they'd serve Coca-Cola, some teenagers would come in. So I, I'm not—the electric equipment doesn't mean anything to me, and these guys come on, and—, and, and, and uh, uh, Bishop has a hole in his jeans and this, and they look really funky. Sam Sam lays wearing this sleeveless shirt and everything, and I'm thinking it's a Detroit rock band. Ladies and gentlemen, the Paul Butterfield band. And before I can it registers, Butterfield starts in a mellow, then he's bam 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 badana, and I'm right in front of his amp, and I'm like the guy from the Max L commercial. I always use analogy. Get blown away. He blew me to the back of my chair. And I saw that energy that Paul, but and you know when you watch this movie about Paul uh, Horn from the Heart, um, Todd Rundgren, all these great people, David Sanborn, they talk about Paul Butterfield's energy, and they go, "You got to be shitting me." And James Cotton, same thing. Come on the stage, 
crank it up and go. Cotton used to do somersaults on stage. Before there were cordless mics, he'd do somersaults and come up in the front row right in front of me playing. Whoa. You know, and it's like, so every band I put together since that day, since the first day I saw Paul Butterfield, and I was in a jug band then, every band I put together, my high school band, my college band, and, 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 and the James Montgomery band, I've always wanted to try and get the kind of energy that Paul Butterfield and James Cotton generate. Right. Well, you're known for it. You're known for it now. Who's it? You're a blues guy. You've always been a blues guy. I love the blues. I always have. I, uh, ben loves the blues. Look at his hat. It's blue. He, um, so is my shirt. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway. The who's, blue hat. Oh, my God. I know. I'm telling you. I know. At Fenway. Who's the very, in your mind, the greatest when it comes to the blues? Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to say... I'm going to say James Cotton, you know, not only because of the tremendous amount of respect that I have for what he did, and but also he, you know, he called me, he called me um, son, and I called him dad. Uh, we were extremely close. Um, I'm making a documentary on him right now. They all stood up is the name of it, and uh, you know, we just brought in a bunch of blues players from all over the all over the country to put this together. We're going to get Steve Miller in the film and Jimmy Vaughn and uh, and and I'm going after Keith. By the way, you got to get him. I got to get him. Got to. But but you know, so you know, for me, I'm going to say James Cotton. I, when I was 19, I played with John Lee Hooker, and um, and I can't underestimate. Uh, you know, and, and and John Lee Hooker. The last my last conversation. All the all the old guys called me Montgomery, right? Otis Span and Muddy and Cotton. Eventually. Cotton and I be, became close enough that he didn't call me Montgomery anymore. But, <laughs> but I get, but I get, but I get this call from Hooker, John Lee Hooker, about two months before he passed. He goes, Montgomery, I finally, I can hear that. I finally, I finally got what I desired. And for me, and for me to hear from a blues man that he knew in his lifetime that he got what he deserved sent goosebumps up because when you think about the blues it's buddy guy bb king john lee hooker because he told me <laughs> and then who else eric clapton if you consider him blues or bonnie if you consider her B. blues B. you know bonamasso yeah. stevie ray but there's only 10 less than 15 of them right and 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 so um and they all know who each other is. Yeah, so, you know what I'm saying? They so, they know where they belong too. So my guys were the my guys were the, were the older guys. Junior Wells was was a, a personal teacher of mine, and he used to come to my shows. And if we had the night off, we Lightning was, Hopkins. I only played one show with Lightning, but you got to play a show. With I him. did, and it was at Liberty Hall in uh, in um, in Houston, Texas. And, and the, the the day I met him was the first Ann Arbor Blues Festival, right? And I'm sitting around with Charlie Musselwhite, and and uh, and he's obviously hitting on this girl, this very attractive brunette, and um, and I'm going, gee, Charlie, and he's kind of nudging me, hey, shut up, kid, <laughs> you know, can't you see him putting a trying to put the zazz on this thing girl. on here, I'm trying to put the zazz on this girl, but and she's got this wicker <laughs> basket with a bottle of wine and everything, so I'm just sitting there, Charlie's hitting on her, and then I see this this. Huge Cadillac with Texas plates pull up, right, off in a slight distance. And I'm thinking to myself, God, that must be Lightning Hopkins, right? So sure enough, these, you know, these big mamas get out of the back seat, and these two big guys get out of the front seat, and sandwiched in between them all is Lightning Hopkins, who's skinny as a rail, he must weigh 110 pounds. And I see him go over and get an orange drink, right, and his hat's way back, and, and, and then he looks over, he's looking right at me and Charlie, right? 
So he pours out his orange drink. I, I'm watching this, right? He puts his hat forward. He adjusts his tie, and he comes over. And in one move, he puts his arm around the girl who Charlie's talking to. He flips the cork out. He's pouring himself a glass of her wine. He says, how you doing, baby? It's lightning. <laughs> and, and, and Lightning Hopkins and the girl walk away, and Muscle White looks at me and goes, Jesus. Muscle White looks at me and goes, damn. <laughs> <laughs> so Lightning Hopkins, he, you know. He's a professional. Yeah, and, and he was supposed to play an acoustic set, right? But here again, just like, you know, he sees all this electric stuff going on. So he gets up and he's got Sam Lee on drums and he's got Bobby Wild Dog Anderson on bass and and he goes and he's in the afternoon he's supposed to be playing acoustic. He says, "I hope these boys can keep up with old Lightning." <laughs> and so how, anyway, how old do you I, figure I, he was? I, oh, I don't know, but I love Lightning. He's ageless. Man. But he was, you know, he was a big influence on me when I was growing up. I had a lot of his records. All all the Texas guys, you know, him and Gatemouth Brown. And Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, you know. The... And they were influences on many, many others who, to some might be, uh, you know, who were non-blues people, be more recognizable as contemporaries, like uh, the the Georgian blues of, of the Almond Brothers, who you toured with, and you played with Greg and Dickie Betts. Yeah, you know, I, I, I love those guys. You know, when people ask me, you know, there's certain questions that get asked all the time, you know, and, you know, who, who do you like to tour with? Like I say, it's only been recently that I came up with Keith as the guy that I want to play with. But, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but, touring with the Almond Brothers was was they were the greatest band to tour with. I, you know, I love touring with Aerosmith as well. They're, they're, they're my two favorite bands that I toured with. But, um, and I still do stuff with Aerosmith and, and the guys in the band. And and Greg and I, you know, I I would play with Greg Almond and friends whenever they were around. Whenever the, you could. Yeah. The thing about the Almond Brothers was that. You know, and and when we hit the road for the first time, it was like during this period of like English hair bands, you know. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And then, you know, like Slade and stuff like that. You know, I remember me and Steve Miller watching Slade one time because they opened a, a, a tour with with me and Steve, and we're out there we're we're out there watching Slade, and and the band starts playing, and and people start throwing stuff at them, right. And Steve nudges me. He goes, "These guys are going to be big." <laughs> you know? That's how yeah. you measure it. Yeah. You know, I had to pick up. Uh, but, it, but but these bands. I just want to finish this yeah. train of thought. But these bands are really competitive. They would pull the plug on you, like oh no, like when your set was over, you couldn't use this light. You couldn't use that. But the Almond Brothers were always like, "Hey, brother, accommodating." They they always called you partner, and I still did. I, yeah. I, I I always call people partner or buddy, and that was from the Almond Brothers. And you could use anything you wanted. You could have dinner with them. It wasn't like you had a separate desk yeah. dressing room. Backstage had, spread was all come for everybody. Come on in and eat with us, you know. Yeah. They, they were the great. And Greg would say, "Listen, if you want to, because they were the first ones to use these monitors all over the stage, them and the Grateful Dead." You know, to have everyone their own monitor was like, wow. Right, so you could hear, hear you. So Greg right. would say, listen, if you really want to hear the set, come on up and, and, and you know, during the set and, and sit behind my My, my monitor. My, yeah, my Leslie speaker. Yeah. So anyway, don't get me started. But, uh, uh, I had to pick them up one time. I was a, ra- a radio star. I was a program director at Rock 102 in Springfield. And the, the Omen Brothers were playing. They said, we're going to do an interview with them, you know, sell their last 12 tickets they have to left to sell. And go pick them up at the hotel and bring them back here. So I went up. I picked them up. And they got in the, the vehicle. And it was weird because Greg Omen didn't say a word. He, he nodded. Hello. Got in. Dickie Betts gets in the back. On the way back, about six, seven-mile drive, Greg Allman didn't say one word, and Dickie Betts wouldn't shut up. Nah, nah. <laughs> he wouldn't stop talking. I'll, I'll tell you, Greg was a, Greg was a really 
you know, legitimately uh, uh, introverted type of guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, and Dickie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. it was a million questions. By the way, he could play a slide a little bit, huh? I love Dickie. I, you know, I always thought, and and, and I. I really always thought, and I played with Dickie Betts a, a, a couple of years ago. With I, I did a show with Dickie Betts and um, and Leon Russell, and um, it was great to see these guys who I'd known for so many years and everything. But I always, I always hoped, and I always thought, I really did. Uh, I really thought that one day Dickie and Greg would play together again. I, I never lost faith in that. I, I, I was sure it was going to happen. And, and, you know, when Greg passed, it was like, you know, intense for me because, because we were friends and we did, we, we did hang out a lot, especially <laughs> in the days when we were bad kids. But, um, but, uh, how, but, but, how... but, but I was re- the, the one, one of the things about Greg's passing that, that, that was also, you know, uh, disappointing to me was that I, I really thought I was going to see the day when the two of them would play together yeah. again. We have a sponsor for the podcast. I know I mentioned uh, Dr. Robert Leonard. I In 2003, I had a hair transplant surgery. They take the hair from where you have a lot of it, which is the sides. So they take the hair from there and they put it where you don't have any. Mm. And it grows. Why? Because it's your hair. And it's the same color and it grows the same pace because it's your hair. Nothing has ever changed my life more. Uh, than having my hair restored. I found a new wife and a new life, all because of Dr. Leonard uh, and uh, Dr. Matthew Lepresti. They are the guys, believe me when I tell you, the guys, if you're considering permanent hair restoration, call 1-800-GET-HAIR. They have six locations in New England, and they're wonderful people, and they're highly professional, and it works. 1-800-GET-HAIR, or go to hairdr.com. Now, what what's going on with the with the world of music as you see it now? Ben over here, he listens to nothing but... Uh, uh, yeah, no, no, no and, I'll, and then, I'll let you hang on that vine. And then he listens. Yeah, yeah, to Ben, ben let's, let's land that joke. Yeah, Ben, he sung himself, <laughs> he sung himself up to dry here because he doesn't know yeah. the, the kind of music you listen to. I was, I he's was trying to invent something. Trying to prompt you. Get, tell me what the fuck you listen because to. Because you listen to. <laughs> no, I listen to a lot of stuff. I, I, I it's born in the eighties. Yeah, born in the eighties. Oh my I god, know. security! No, but when I was security. young, like one of my first favorite bands when I was a kid was the Doors. That was as a like fifth grader or something. That was the first thing I got into. But mostly now, I would listen to something like Pearl Jam. That would be what I would listen to now. Yeah, Pearl Jam, how old fashioned! Huh? <laughs> Whoa! Well, the do- no, but see, Doors, the, the Who, the Doors were were already. I mean, Jim Morrison died in what nineteen seventy one one. Something like that? Yeah, I No, because it was at that time of like Columbia House Records. So my brother was doing the pennies for a bunch of albums, and then whatever got left over came to me, and then whatever I liked, I stuck with for a while. Yeah, because when I first started smoking pot when I I was in high school, uh, we we didn't even know how to roll it. We we would like take the end of a cigarette and roll it out, and then then put some pot in on top of it and twist it up. I mean, sure. And so, and, 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 I really hated the doors, to be honest with you. <laughs> As but, I've gotten older, I've gotten further and further away. Like, because oh. I was such a, you know, I was so into like R&B and black music and everything. Right. And these guys were so white. But I loved, 
uh, break on through to the other side. That was good. To me, the first album was was incredible. that album was great. Yeah, and the second one was uh, Strange I, Days, and then they had uh, they had Waiting two or three good sun. songs on Waiting for the Sun. Like you know, I like she lived on Love Street. I don't know why it's kind of cute. And and I will say that that was then. I mean, now I look back and I I, I like the Doors, and I don't know what I had against them other than maybe they were white. I don't know. They weren't but, good uh, enough. <laughs> yeah, they were. You know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I back, but but. Um, but I I do have tremendous res- amount of respect for for Jim Morrison too, you know. Well, just just because of the age of us now, Ben, don't get don't get scared off by this. I'm not. But everybody always asks prominent, successful musicians uh, how when they had a transformation. Was it the Beatles? You know, in, in the Beatles' case, it was you know Elvis and Little Richard. Uh, you know, and then Bob Dylan. Well, let's not forget in the Beatles case, and the, especially the Rolling Stones case, it was Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. True. And, and 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 you know, when the Beatles land for the first time, and they got all those mics in front of them, yeah. one of the questions there, well, what do you want to see when you're in America? And they're expecting, you know, the Empire State Building and the Golden Gate Bridge, and they say Howlin' Wolf and and, and Muddy Waters, yeah. and the reporters are going, what? Huh? What the hell is that? Right. Right. But but and and that's why you can't underestimate. The influence of American blues on on the history of the world, and I say that if 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 you'll give me this, when the Berlin Wall comes down, and this is a theory of mine that I, I can substantiate, you know, they, well, there's a Polish pope, and he's uniting these Catholics, and and Ronald Reagan is putting pressure on on the Soviet Union and getting to outspend themselves and whatever. But when those kids tear the wall down in Berlin, they want American blue jeans and they want American rock and roll. That's what they want. And we gave and, them and, Hasselhoff. And, <laughs> <laughs> Good point. But but American rock and roll is is one of the reasons why that wall came down. When when uh, when the hostages and in, 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 uh, Jimmy Carter's administration were held hostage in yep. Iran. The American rock and roll and American blue jeans were the biggest item on the black market in Iran. Even though the burning effigies of Carter and the American flag, the young people there, they're killing, literally. They're dying. Well, literally. I'm I'm trying to think of a good word. They gosh darn can't wait to get (laughs) (laughs) American blue jeans and rock and roll. So, and, And when Yeltsin is removed from power and comes back in, they're blasting Hotel California. So... American rock and roll has had a huge, huge influence on young people worldwide and on culture and on our culture, our That's rock true. and roll culture, and our hip hop. And culture. the biggest influence on rock and roll, it was blues. And blues. That, the blues had, in the words of Muddy Waters, the blues had a baby, and they called it rock and roll. And without Muddy Waters, it's arguably without those guys from Chicago and Muddy who were taking these African rhythms and combining them with the one four five progression, and influencing the Beatles and the Rolling Stones more than any other people sure. on this planet. So that's my case to be made that American blues is there has a tremendous impact. So you're really saying it started with a Polish pope? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Where's my harmonica? <laughs> you know. Hey, yeah, no, that's, no. that's a good idea. Okay, where is your harmonica? Yeah, yeah, hang on. Keep talking about something oh, interesting. I'll, I'll make a Polish joke. <laughs> if, you, right. if you can think of something interesting, what, Mike. What do you call a Polish guy with a $600 hat? What? Pope. <laughs> so a Polish guy goes in for 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 an, uh, good thing. I, my best friend's Polish. A guy, a guy, a Polish guy goes in for an eye examination. Can you read the bottom line? It's really small. X Z 
G Q X Y Z Q L P says read it. I says I know the guy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a big fan of yours forever, man, and I, I'm. It's a privilege for me to be on your show. Thank really you very, is. very much. It's, it's great to have you on the program, and uh, I don't know how we're going to top this next week, but uh, our thanks to James Montgomery for being here tonight.